Hello, and welcome to the Antioch Fort Worth weekly podcast. At Antioch, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and his purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on a Sunday morning, please visit AntiochFortWorth.com. I am excited to preach this morning. Uh, and, you know, I, I had to like push down any emotion that was about to happen there because I've got to talk for a while here. Um, and so bear with me if I'm in a tender place this morning, just imagining how wonderful these seniors are. But my name is Graydon Jones, uh, and I'm the youth pastor, if you don't know me. Um, I'm also uh, jumping in as the Antioch Discipleship School Director this coming year. Yeah, I am tremendously excited. And I want to give a push for it even right here as I've been given the microphone. Uh, and we extended the deadline to May 31st. And so, yeah, I love extending deadlines. Uh, I'm known for that in the youth ministry. Uh, like, ah, oh, deadlines, what are those? Um, so uh, May 31st, but hey, jump in, apply. If you want eight months of transformational discipleship, then come on. If you don't want that, I'm not sure what else to say. Um, but let the Lord do it in your heart. So uh, it's, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be so much fun. So uh, right now, I'm going to start a new sermon, uh, which is a bit of a bridge between series right now. So this Sunday and next Sunday, we're kind of bridging the gap between the series that we've been in, telling the story of God all throughout scripture. And then we're about to do a series where people tell their personal story and how it's within the story of God. Um, and so this week and next week, Jamie and I are, are doing a bit of a bridge here. Um, we, we're going to be talking about how the early church and the historic church found themselves in God's story. And then we're going to launch into that summer series. Uh, so think about it like uh, the previous series uh, was uh, Star Wars episode episodes one through six, and we're about to do a whole bunch of rogue ones, you know, just like, just like one person's story within the big story, right? And if you don't like Star Wars, I'm sorry. I'm, my wife, I'm sorry. I had to, I just had to say it. Um, hopefully that helps you. If it doesn't, sorry. So the title of this message um, then is uh, uh, Finding the Early Church in God's Story. Um, through theological imagination. And that's, and that's the theme that we're going to go into this morning because um, there's so many ways that the early church found themselves in God's story. So I had to just really find one to sink into. And so we're going to talk about uh, imagination this morning, theological imagination. Um, and I hope that this stirs you up and I hope that it refreshes you and it's creative to you. It's a bit of a different approach than normal. We're going to look at Galatians 3. Um, but I hope that that's actually a good thing and it helps you and, and, and stretches your theological imagination today. I've been uh, thinking about this so much, and it's just endless. Like, I can't get, en I can't get to the end of it. Um, and so all of us have this capability to imagine, and God wants to use that for his glory and for the kingdom of God. Okay, so here's our roadmap this morning. I just want to give you all the, the roadmap, the points here, um, which is this. Number one, what is a theological imagination? Number two, uh, two dangers and the necessity of intentionality. Number three, the interplay of imagination, experience, and belief. And number four, Galatians 3 as Paul's theological imagination. That's where we're going. We'll unpack each of those things. Don't be overwhelmed. 
Uh, but may your imagination just run wild in Jesus this morning as I'm talking. Um, there's a bit of a tension here. As a speaker, I want you to stay with me, but as part of this message, I want you to go with Jesus. I want you to start imagining as I'm talking, right? Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna jump in here. Number one, what is a theological imagination? Well, let's back up. Uh, what is imagination? <laughs> what does imagination have to do with theology? Um, there's something unique about the human imagination. Our ability that we've been given to imagine is unique. And I think the reason it's unique is it's a reflection of who God is, right? God is a creator God. God is creative. And, and being created in God's image, then we've been given this capability to imagine and to create, because our imagination is actually fueling ideas and words, and we create worlds around, this little world I'm living in is being created as I speak, right? I can put out something that's Jesus-like and, and positive, or I can put something out that's very negative, but I've created this little bubble of my little world right here through my words. I've been given this imagination to think up creativity and hope and inventions and communities and, and vision and all these different things that we hold so dear, right? Um, it's, it's part of our Imago Dei image of God nature uh, to create. And so uh, but we don't have just an imagination. We have a theological imagination. Um, we imagine who God is and what that means for our lives, starting in our imagination. And no matter how wonderful and good and perfect God is, you kind of have to go through your imagination to really see what you think God is like. Um, and of course, God interrupts that so much, and we'll talk about more of that, but, but it starts in the place of imagination. And so think about this. What do you imagine God to be like? Really, think about it. What, what do you imagine God to be like? What do you imagine that Jesus looks like? What do you imagine the church to be like? what it could be and what it should be. Um, what do you imagine it looks like to embody the kingdom of God in your life, in your unique place in this world? There's so many things to imagine. And this gets me stirred up. This gets me excited because I wanna spend a lifetime imagining just how good God is. I wanna spend a lifetime imagining what would it look like if I actually obeyed the Sermon on the Mount? I want to imagine, what would it look like for the kingdom of God to really come to earth as in heaven? What an imaginative statement. What an imaginative prayer that Jesus has given us to see that would actually change everything. That would actually change how I think and act and what I say to people, how I bring people into my life. It would change it all. What an imaginative journey that we've been invited into and so I hope that kind of stirs your imagination a bit this morning as well. I think that the best example of a redemptive, creative, theological imag imagination in our history uh, is from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his beloved community, right? He talked about that so much, and it's an imaginative idea, the beloved community. I pulled up this, this quote that I love. Um, he's talking about his work in nonviolent protests, and he said, the end is reconciliation, 
The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this type of understanding goodwill that will transform the deep gloom of, of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. That's an imagination. That's the type of imagination that I want to cultivate. What could God really do in and through us? To imagine that is just beautiful. It's, there's no formula to it because it's about beauty. It's like a piece of art. It's just beautiful. That's the type of imagination that I want. He was imagining the one-table theology of Galatians, the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians, the church community in Acts 2, the enemy love of Matthew 5. You put it all together, the beloved community, right? That's what we're called to do is to read the scriptures and pull things in and say, what if we really imagined and then what if we really lived it out together in the church, right? That vision's still in process, by the way. Uh, we still need to, to grow into this vision of the beloved community and may the church take up that prophetic imagination. So that's, that's an introduction there to what is theological imagination. Um, and so let's go to the second section here. Because I have to warn you, there are, there are two ways of danger uh, and there's the necessity of intentionality, okay? So let me warn you of the first way of danger. The first way of danger is unawareness, simply not being aware that we have a theological imagination. Perhaps there are some of us this morning who are thinking, I've never, I've never thought that before. I've never considered that I have an imagination that actually depends on how I see God. Um, and so uh, we have to be aware of this if we are to cultivate it, right? And we have to actually know that it's there because if we don't know that it's there, if we're completely unaware, um, then our perception of God really will be tossed around by many different things, uh, feelings, our personality, cultural influence, pride, personal blind spots, sinful structures, other people's opinions, scriptural proof texts, dualism, the voice of sacrificial religion. We could just go on and on and on. All of those things will be, sh will be shaping your imagination if you don't have a guard up because you know that it's there, right? So we have to become aware in order to know what's going on in our minds, in our imagination. That's kind of like what marketing is, right? Is other people imagining for us. So we like live in other people's imagination. That's what's going on in our world, especially as a consumer culture, right? Um, and so that's a good, uh, that's an okay starting place. It's okay to start in someone else's imagination if you've never experienced it before. Um, that's a little bit of what parenting is. We're helping our kids have an imagination of a life marked by faith and ethical living and good virtues and loving the church and loving each other, right? We imagine for them because they're developing the maturity that it takes to imagine themselves. But we would dare not clamp down on their own imagination and say, I can only imagine for you. We want to, them to cultivate their own imagination. We want to invite them into this journey. And so to do that, we have to make them aware that they have an imagination, and therefore there's some intentionality needed to cultivate it in a way that honors Jesus, right? Um, if you want to know about this process of other people's imaginations, uh, you can ask uh, Lexi and Lindy about New York City, and they'll imagine for you. Uh, I just want to throw that out there. Um, so if you say, I'm going to New York City, they're going to immediately start telling you like, well, this, 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 this. They're going to cultivate your imagination, right? Uh, but then you have to actually go and experience it for yourself, and there you can actually imagine what it's like, right? Um, 
So, uh, and, I, ooh, and I just want to say this. Jesus invites us to become like children. I do want to say that because they dare to imagine. Yeah. Kids dare to imagine. So there's some, there's some interplay here between we imagine for our children, but we also are challenged by them to imagine. Um, and so there, that's what discipleship looks like. We have to cultivate our imagination with intentionality um, and, and, uh, and to cultivate it through a life with Jesus, right? Um, so that's the first danger, unawareness. Let's be aware. The second way of danger uh, is that there's a danger of our imagination being co-opted by sin, right? Uh, there's a, a big danger here of sin taking what was a gift and then misusing it and abusing it, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of us feel like, I don't know, this seems like a, a scary thing because my imagination is so often sinful, right? Um, how could I use it uh, for the kingdom of God? Um, but absolutely, the imagination is uh, infamous for being co-opted, right? Uh, we imagine all sorts of things that are not the kingdom of God. Uh, sin and, and violence and hatred and lust and abuse and, and racism. That Yesterday, there was a racially motivated mass shooting uh, in Buffalo, right? Many of us saw that on the news. Um, the, the racist imagination is alive and well because of sin. Um, and so we have to be careful. This is a danger to our discipleship, the fact that this gift from God can be so easily co-opted for the destruction and death that is sin. Um, and, and so uh, the, the, the imagination that God gave us to imagine a new creation, it gets twists. Uh, it gets twisted into a, a diseased imagination and a limited imagination. Okay, so a diseased imagination would be the sin of action and the limited imagination would be the sin of inaction. The things that we do, the things that we have left undone, right? Um, and so the diseased imagination uh, dehumanizes other people um, and baptizes our violence. There's a couple of examples there, right? But the limited imagination then, it simply judges people as unworthy of God and, and believes in a partisan God, right? That, that would be more of a limited imagination. Um, however, the answer to this danger is not to run away from imagining, but to use it in its proper place, to redeem it, to allow the Holy Spirit to breathe in and through it. That's the answer. We don't run away from it. Uh, the, the misuse and abuse of a gift does not mean that the gift is bad, right? It's still a gift. God's gifted us the imagination, and so we want to use it for redemptive kingdom ends, right? Um, and that's really important. Um, in, in The Prophetic Imagination by Walter Brueggemann, he, he writes that every single oppressive regime is afraid of the artist. Because it turns out that the imagination, though it's dangerous to us because of sin, it's more dangerous to the enemy, right? Because God can, can imagine, no matter what's going on in the world, God can imagine redemptive, uh, kingdom-centered ideas and, and words and creativity through the imagination, and so it's meant to be used by God. Um, the, the key is that it has a secure anchor in Jesus. The more secure you are in your anchor, anchor, the farther you can go, the more confident you can be. And so if our imagination is anchored in Jesus, we'll quickly understand when it's pursuing something that's not of Jesus. Right? That's a mark of maturity is how quick do you know that you sinned? That's a good way to measure your maturity. If I understand I sin within like half a second, oh, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, if it takes months, we need to grow in maturity in Jesus, right? Um, 
So it may not be a safe journey, but journeys of significance are not usually safe, right? There's redemption needed in our imagination. So there are ways of danger, but Jesus is walking with us, all right? Um, We're going to move into section number three, the interplay of imagination, experience, and belief. Are y'all good? Are we we tracking? Sweet. Awesome. Awesome. All right, uh, the interplay of experience, imagination, and belief. Um, why, why does this matter anyway, really? I, I've hinted at it here and there, but why does, the the, why does the cultivation of theological imagination matter? I think it matters because there is, there is a, uh, something going on in our imagination all the time that we're not always uh, aware of, again, like we talked about. Um, and it's just kind of going. It's not good or bad. It's just a process that's happening. So you can throw that up on the screen. Um, this, this is what I would call the interplay of imagination, experience, and belief. Um, we imagine, uh, and then we experience something, and then therefore we reimagine, and then we come up with some belief on the other side of that, right? So breaking this down a little bit, it would be that imagination typically comes before experiences. You could call these expectations. Uh, these are... Uh, they are shaped by our assumptions, our, our, our cultural background, our worldview, whatever you want to call that. Um, there's stuff going on that's making us imagine that something will be some way. But then we actually experience it, um, and the thing may or may not be what we imagined it to be. And so, therefore, we go into this process of reimagining. And perhaps that means I was right. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I was right. Whatever I imagined, it actually happened. And other times we think, whoa, in light of that experience, now I must reimagine my assumptions and my expectations. And therefore, that's what we would call a belief, a conclusion based on this interplay of imagination and experience, okay? So, therefore, there is some sort of um, influence going between those two things, okay? So my imagination actually affects my experience. What I've assumed was gonna happen, what I expected that was gonna happen, sometimes it just gets confirmed uh, in the experience whether or not that was actually true, um, right? So if, if you think that I hate you, then you're gonna interpret what I say to be hateful, spiteful, passive-aggressive, and therefore, well, there you go. There it is. He hates me. I don't hate you, by the way. I just want to say that. Uh, I do want to say that, but um, uh, I, don't, I don't hate you. But you might think that and might imagine that if that was your, your imagination going into the experience. Um, another example, I want to do a public encouragement here uh, for Zach Woods. Zach Woods, is, he is so encouraging to me um, in my preaching. And I'm a better preacher because Zach Woods has walked in encouragement consistently with me uh, throughout these years. And so therefore, when I prepare a sermon, I imagine Zach to be there. I imagine Zach to have an encouraging word for me. Um, and therefore, I work harder to preach a better sermon, right? Um, so another way to say that is, Everybody in this church is actually benefiting because Zach was walking in Christ-likeness and encouragement, right? Um, isn't that awesome? So my imagination is affected uh, how I experience, what I do, my actions, right? There's, there's, a, there's a correlation there. Uh, but on the opposite side, our experience also affects our imagination because there is a re-imagination process. So some of us maybe grew up with this idea that God is, is spiteful and vengeful and angry and he's really out to get you. Um, and then we've had an encounter and experience with the love and the mercy and the compassion of God. And it's caused us to reimagine who God is, right? 
And that is a wonderful example of how our experience affects our imagination, right? So there's an interplay here. But I do want to say that this process is just going all the time. It's not necessarily good or bad. It can be used for both ends. And so what I want to say to you is that discipleship is the process of intentional cultivation. It's the process of interrupting this process with the things of faith, okay? So therefore, imagination, if we're going through this process, it can just be a really cheap copy and paste of whatever's going on in the world, whatever my background is, whatever my worldview is. However, it can be a redemptive and creative force for the kingdom of God if we let it be interrupted by things like time with Jesus. If we, if we interrupt it with hearing God and reading scripture with a, with a lens of Jesus, right? If we have encounters with Jesus, spiritual disciplines like worship and prayer, Lectio Divina, Ignatian prayer, this is actually what this is. Ignatian prayer is imaginative prayer. It's reading the scriptures and imagining that they're happening and that you're in them, right? Um, if you interrupt it with community in the church, if you interrupt it with listening to other churches and other expressions of faith, um, if you interrupt with discipleship with one another in twos and threes, if you interrupt it with proximity to pain and empathy with other people, if you interrupt it with a commitment that God really is revealed in Jesus, then this process becomes discipleship. It's no longer just something that's out of my control. It's interrupted by faith, okay? And so, this is discipleship, to be shaped over time into the image of Jesus through intentional choices and practices and habits that form our desires to be pointed towards Jesus, right? Um, and so therefore, we submit our imagination and experience into that process of discipleship, right? That's the anchor to Jesus I'm talking about. We submit those things to Jesus and allow him to shape them. Otherwise, we'll just be on autopilot, um, and who knows what will be in our imagination. And so that brings me to the last section here, which is Paul and Galatians 3. And I think that we're going to see the most prolific theological imagination in the early church, which is Paul and his writing. Um, and so he's inviting the Galatian believers to break open their imagination with the story of God, okay? Okay. So this morning, we're going to go through the whole chapter. Yes, that is a lot, but we're going to get through it. And uh, I'm actually going to use N.T. Wright's translation. It's called New Testament for Everyone. Uh, I highly recommend it. And um, I think we're going to see, it's actually shocking if you never thought about this, how much of Paul's writing is imaginative. It's everywhere. Um, and so I'm going to try and pull that out and, and highlight that. But just so you know, going in, here's the point of the chapter. Um, Paul's goal is to show the Galatians that both Jew and Gentile are fully children of Abraham uh, without adherence to the law because God's promise to Abraham came before the law and lasted after the law. It was, it was bigger, right? Um, and so therefore, the law was a temporary system that marked Israel out as a distinct People And Paul is challenging them to imagine the story as bigger than just that, okay? That's what's going on in this chapter. Uh, we're going to read through it, and I'll interrupt myself and, and throw in some, some ideas here and there, okay? And it should be up on the screen for you, so you can throw up verse 1 there. It's a great place to start. <laughs> you witless Galatians. Is that like a way to say you're not very imaginative? You witless Galatians. Who has bewitched you? King Jesus was portrayed on the cross before your very eyes. There's just one thing I want to know from you. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of Torah by, or by hearing and believing? 
You are so witless. You began with the spirit and now you're ending with the flesh. Did you really suffer so much for nothing? If indeed it's going to be for nothing. The one who gives you the spirit and performs powerful deeds among you, does he do this through your performance of Torah or through hearing and believing? Let's pause here. He starts off with all these rhetorical questions and rhetorical questions are inherently imaginative. They're asking you to consider and think and imagine what's going on, right? Um, And specifically, Paul is challenging them to imagine, do we really know the story? Have we really understood the story properly? He's asking them, are you still hiking up Mount Sinai after Pentecost? Are you still doing that? Because then I think maybe you need to read the story again. This is an imaginative introduction here. Um, Another note here for us personally, as we read this, we need to be asking, imaginatively asking ourselves, um, what does this mean for us today? Because I am going to guess that none of you are trying to practice Torah this morning. (laughs) Probably based on your lunch plans. I don't think that you're going to be doing that. Um, And so the question is, the scriptures are a living word to us. They mean something for us too. The question is, what do we do that is an equivalence here? that causes us to misunderstand the story and to go back into the way things were rather than living in this new creation way that we live now, okay? So be thinking about that. Imagine that. Uh, Verse six, it's like Abraham. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So you know that it's people of faith who are children of Abraham. The Bible foresaw that God would justify the nations by faith, so it announced the gospel to Abraham in advance when it declared that the nations will be blessed in you. So you see, the people of faith are blessed along with faithful Abraham. Okay, pause again. Abraham, this should be jogging your theological memory here of the big story of God. Abraham was a super big part of that. Um, And Paul culminates here with this idea that people of faith equal children of Abraham. He's claiming the fulfillment of the Abrahamic uh, promise that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed. Paul actually says here that that was the gospel in, in advance, The Abraham promise, that was the gospel in advance. I want to say um, that this can be uh, creative and stretching to us if we preach a short gospel, right? To say, the nations will be blessed in you, Abraham. If that's the gospel, I might need a bigger gospel to contain that rather than just uh, Jesus died for your sins and go to heaven when you die, right? That. We didn't get Abraham in there, so what was going on, right? So we have to have a a creative way to share the gospel that includes what Paul is calling the gospel. Um, Because this promise, it leads to a creation of a new people, a new family called the church. We are family. Is our imagination big enough to say that? Within this room, we are family, but we're family with the worldwide church, So we need some imagination to see that, to to feel connected, right, to the global church. Um, You know, the most common way that the New Testament refers to believers is brothers and sisters. We're brothers. We're sisters. Together. Look around for a second. This is your family. That's really cool. But we need, we need an imagination big enough to say church is not about just come and consume something for an hour or so. It's be family together. Brothers and sisters together, co-partners in the kingdom of God. That's a really good vision. Um, That's really good. Okay, keep reading. Verse number 10. Because you see, 
Those who belong to the works of the law camp are under a curse. Yes, that's what the Bible says. Cursed is everyone who doesn't stick fast by everything written in the book of the law to perform it. But because nobody is justified before God in the law, it's clear that the righteous shall live by faith. The law, however, is not by faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live in them. The Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse on our behalf. As the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This was so that the blessing of Abraham could flow through to the nations in King Jesus and so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is crazy talk. Paul quotes a bunch of Old Testament passages here, and he's giving them something that is shocking, okay? He paints this image of two paths, okay? Uh, if you go back into the law, you've placed yourself underneath a curse because a curse is waiting for those who do not obey everything in the law. Now, I want to say this. This is not anti-Semitic or claiming that the law was bad. Paul is simply acknowledging that the curse of Deuteronomy is still in effect, it was right there in the text. It's still in effect. And that certain Galatians had opted to live underneath that curse, okay? But the second way then is because Jesus became that curse through his death and absorbed it and brought it to an end, all nations can come to God. Jews and Gentiles can worship Yahweh together, okay? These are the two paths that Paul has put out. And it is shocking that he would say there is a cursed Messiah, that was not supposed to be able to happen. That accursed Messiah, that, like that doesn't even go together. That's an oxymoron. What in the world is, where's Paul getting this from? I think he's getting it from revelation and the Holy Spirit and his creative imagination of who God is. Perhaps our definition of what a savior looks like gets messed up in Jesus because he was a cursed Messiah. And he took that curse and he absorbed it and brought it to an end. That's amazing. You and I can't do that. <laughs> we can't take curses and absorb them and bring them to an end, but Jesus can. This is amazing. I'm reminded here of uh, James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which is an imaginative theology about Jesus entering into that curse um, and, and identification with those who have suffered, specifically black Americans uh, in, in our culture. Um, and so this is incredible to see Jesus in a bigger way, a more imaginative way, that he is the Messiah who, brought, who was brought into a curse. And therefore, we don't have to live under a curse anymore. To do that is putting ourselves in the jail cell when the door's already open, right? Um, and then I wanna highlight this in verse 14. Putting faith in a promise, faith in a promise, that is an imaginative act. We can't see it yet. It's faith. We can't see everything yet. It's a promise. It hasn't come to fulfillment yet. But when we put our faith into a promise, we're saying, Lord, have dominion over my imagination. That though I can see all these other circumstances, I will trust. I will put my imagination under the reign of Christ, right? That is beautiful and why we have an imaginative faith. Verse 14, my brothers and sisters, let me use a human illustration. When, so there you go. He wants us to use our imagination. It's an illustration right here. When someone makes a covenant will, nobody sets it aside or adds to it. Well, the promises were made to Abraham and his seed. That is his family. And it doesn't say his seeds as though referring to several families, but indicates a single family by saying, and to your seed, meaning the Messiah. 
This is what I mean. God made this covenanted will. The law, which came 430 years later, can't undermine that and make the promise null and void. If the inheritance came through the law, it would no longer be by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise, okay? So here we are to imagine the idea of a will, a covenant that God has given, and it can't be, it can't be uh, null and void by something that came on later. It's still true, right? And that's the Abraham promise. And Paul then reads the scriptures with such an imaginative mind that he sees Jesus just by the mere presence of a singular word instead of a plural word. He sees Jesus in that. What if we read the scriptures looking for Jesus that hard, right? Having such an imagination that we could see Jesus in that and say, hey, that's talking about the Messiah. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. That's how the early church was reading the scriptures. They were searching the scriptures like Jesus was treasure and they were digging everywhere. We should do that too, FYI. We should do that too. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the family should come to whom it had been promised. It was laid down by angels at the hand of a mediator, that's Moses. He, however, is not the mediator of the one, but God is one. Is the law then against God's promises? Of course not. No, if a law had been given that could, that could have given life, then covenant membership really would have been by the law. But the Bible shut up everything together under the power of sin so that the promise, which comes by the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah, should be given to those who believe. Okay, pause here again. That of course not back there is kind of Paul saying, now please be careful with that imagination, right? If we get too far from the anchor in Jesus, then we might misunderstand what's going on here. Be careful with that imagination. The law is not bad. No, the law is not bad. It's just that it doesn't bring us into this covenant membership, right? That came through the promise. Um, and so this last verse that I just read is kind of an imaginative description of how to go from the promise to the law to fulfillment in Jesus. Uh, he, he's saying the Bible brought everything together under the power of sin. So the law was given almost to 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 help us wait until Jesus would actually deal with sin, like capital S sin, like cosmic power sin in the cross. Um, and so the law then was not to save us from sin, but, but to say, now hold on, let me get you through this story, through the person of Jesus in the cross. And he keeps going here. Verse 23, before this faithfulness arrived, we were kept under guard by the law. Okay, so the, the way that the last verse talked about the law, hear it here with this idea of being kept under guard by the law in close confinement until the coming faithfulness should be revealed. Thus the law was like a babysitter for us, looking after us until the coming of the Messiah so that we might be given covenant membership on the basis of faithfulness. But now that faithfulness has come, we are no longer under the rule of the babysitter for you are all children of God through faith in the Messiah Jesus. Okay, another metaphor, another illustration. Do you see how much of Paul's writing is imaginative? There's so much. So we have this idea of a babysitter, a tutor, a guardian. Uh, in the Greek, uh, a pedagogos, which was a servant or a slave who was set over the heirs of the household until they were, became adults, right? It was a way to keep the heirs of the household, just, just keep them safe, not get into trouble until you grow to maturity. And what Paul is saying is that uh, when we are going back underneath the law, we're going back underneath a babysitter, though we are mature adults, right? 
Again, ask yourself, what is the equivalent for you today? What are the things that bring you back under immaturity when you've, you've been grown into Christ, right? That's, that's where we should be hearing this word here. You can read Romans 7 for more of this idea from, uh, from Paul. Um, and so, uh, uh, and then we come to the climax of the chapter here, verse 27 uh, through 29. You see, every one of you who has been baptized into the Messiah has put on the Messiah There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no male and female. You are all one in the Messiah, Jesus. And if you belong to the Messiah, you are Abraham's family. You stand to inherit the promise. This is the climax here of Paul's imaginative theology in this chapter. You, if you're in the Messiah, you belong to Abraham's family. That's what, we, that's what he was, he's been getting to, is this idea that we are part of this story, the story that came long before us. You are in the story. And to do so, he, he describes the most imaginative little passage here, um, which is first about baptism. If you've been baptized into the Messiah, a baptism is an imaginative act. It's seeing yourself in the story of God, the family of God, to go down into the water, into the grave with Jesus and come out on the, and through the resurrection, to be a new creation. And, and if that is true about us, then he imagines a future, a church, a community that no one had ever seen before. I mean, just undermining, subverting the mechanisms of human society. And he's saying, we're not under that anymore if you've been baptized into the Messiah. So no more the separation of the Jew and Gentile, right? No more to the system of dehumanization and and profit at all costs that sustained slavery. When he says male and female, I would say no more male versus female, right? Where we're we're put against each other. No, we're co-partners in the kingdom of God. I would say no more male plus female, as if male is whole and female is just kind of an add-on and defined in light of who men are, right? That was happening so much in these cultures. Uh, Paul is condemning the diseased and limited imagination that produced patriarchy and slavery and racism, right? This is an imaginative statement and it comes through baptism into the family of Abraham, the family of God. Um, and so when I, when I read this, I'm reminded that the church is meant to be led forth by this type of redemptive theological imagination. We are meant to be at the forefront of this, to say we're living in a new world, we're living in a new creation. And so come on to the journey, come into the family. Um, and Paul pulls the chapter together by yeah, returning to that Abraham theme, theme. It all comes together here. And he's saying, we're in a, we're in a new world where the slave is my brother, um, where men and women are not pitted against each other. And there's just one table. There's not two, right? This is so good. So as we finish here, um, don't you see how significant Paul's theological imagination is to the story, to seeing yourself in the story? And so... May this morning, may you be inspired to cultivate your own theological imagination. I would think that Paul would, would not say, no, 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 this is just for me. This is, I'm the only one who can do this, right? No, he's challenging the Galatians to do this as well, to say, to see this, to open your eyes and see this story that you've been a part of. 
It would be Paul's joy to imagine believers throughout the centuries to be cultivating a theological imagination of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Um, And so I'm gonna invite all of us to stand up here and we're gonna go into a bit of a ministry time. Uh, Worship team can come up. uh, The ministry team can come up. And this is a ministry time where hopefully um, we can see Jesus in a new way. Um, This is a response of uh, of imagination, imaginative theology, imaginative faith. Um, And so I really only have really one way to respond here, um, uh, which is to say, if you feel that you need an overhaul in your imagination, if you need some renovation in your imagination, if faith is not, it's lacking creativity right now, um, if your faith, you don't see Jesus and and you're just like blown away, um, maybe you need an imaginative moment with Jesus to see God as God really is. Um, And so if that's you, then I'd love to invite you to come up and get some prayer um, and maybe ask someone that you came with to pray for you as well. Um, And perhaps we'll just see Jesus a little bit more clearly this morning as we hand over our imagination to him. Um, And if you have any other need, please come get prayer as well. Um, So Jesus, we love you. And thank you, Lord, that you've given us this imagination, this brilliant, beautiful imagination. But Lord, we ask that it would come under submission to you, uh, that you would define our theological imagination, that you would help us see you as you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Please come, get some prayer.